Welcome to impactboom.org. We search the globe to find the people, stories, ideas, and inspiration to help you create maximum positive impact. Each week, Impact Boom brings you thought-provoking interviews with world-leading practitioners passionate about creating positive social change. These designers, social entrepreneurs, educators, innovators, thinkers, and doers share their projects, initiatives, thoughts, and insights on creating a better world. You can find all the stories, links, and other great content at impactboom.org. Follow us on Facebook or Twitter for the latest updates, or subscribe to the newsletter or on iTunes. Thanks for listening to episode 128 of Impact Boom. My name's Tom Allen, and I'm passionate about bringing you the latest interviews and insights to help you create positive social impact. Today, we're speaking with Andrew Hamilton. Andrew Hamilton is the principal consultant at Hamilton Consulting and Social Scaffolding. Andrew has supported organizations nationally to become NDIS ready and worked with the NDS nationally to support their members in the NDIS readiness journey. Andrew specializes in not-for-profit and corporate partnerships, including developing and assessing new business models across the for-profit, social enterprise, and profit-for-purpose opportunities. Having created a career in sales and marketing, Andrew is passionate about the role of sales in the growth and development of all business, and how the success of business means more jobs and opportunity for all people seeking employment. So in today's podcast, we'll discuss Andrew's views on the current state of the social enterprise sector in Australia, We'll get Andrew's insights on impact investment, and we'll hear Andrew's perspectives on measuring impact. So Andrew, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks for having me, John. So to kick things off, can you please share a little bit about your background and what led you to working in the not-for-profit and social enterprise sectors? Uh, Sure. So I was in uh, sales and marketing roles in IT and financial services for many years, Right. and then I actually sold a uh, superannuation system to Forrester's superannuation at the time I and I could see there was an opportunity to contribute to their marketing. They just paid a lot of money for a system and yep. they needed to expand their membership base. Yep. So I was a volunteer board member at Forrester's ANA superannuation fund it was called at the time and I could sit for three years and I could see that uh, I could use my business skills and I'd recently finished my MBA and wasn't really using it yeah. in my sales and marketing roles yeah. and I could see an opportunity to influence the uh, and bring some skills to the sector uh, at that time. So whilst I was on the board, I started looking around and that's when Social Ventures Australia was sort of growing its presence. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were in quite strong in Sydney and they wanted to expand into Queensland. Yeah. Uh, so after essentially waiting for about a year for that role to become available, I, I joined them and I was, I was with SVAs for six years uh, and that was sort of life-changing as I'm sure as most people move from the for-profit business sector into the not-for-profit business sector. Yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah, and uh, so yeah, that, that was my transition and, and I often talk about my passion for, for sales and marketing. If, if you can't sell something, then a business is not going to succeed, whether yeah. it's for-profit or not-for-profit and that's the sort of I guess, influence that I like to have over organisations I work with. Yeah, fantastic. A lot of great skills you can bring in there. Yeah, I think because people in the not-for-profit space haven't necessarily worked in sales and marketing roles. That's definitely a consistent gap that I see. Mm. Lots of people have got management experience or people experience or social outcomes experience, but not necessarily sales and marketing because 
most people don't like it. Yeah. <laughs> most yeah. people associate it with your insurance salesperson, yeah. uh, which is fine by me. I've got broad shoulders. But yeah, that's definitely a consistent gap that I see and something that I, I like to try and influence. Mm, fantastic. So in your consulting roles then at both uh, Hamilton Consulting and Social Scaffolding, can you please tell us a little bit about some of the work that you're doing in, in the space and perhaps some projects you'd like to share? Yes, yes. So, so I was at Open Minds for a period of time and I could see them struggle with NDIS readiness. Uh, Queensland was the last to sign the bilateral agreement. Mm. You could see what was happening nationally. Working in an organisation, seeing those challenges, I thought I could be more influential externally and consulting to these organisations to get NDIS ready. Yeah. So that's when I started Hamilton Consulting and I got subcontracted by NDS in Queensland, National Disability Services in Queensland and then Australia, did lots of work with the Queensland Alliance of Mental Health mm. uh, and a lot of that was around using the NDIS readiness toolkit which talks about governance and finance and HR and a key one was the sales and marketing piece. So I. I'd really stick my neck out and push the sales and marketing need within these organisations yeah. to become NDIS ready because a person now gets a package and you need to sell to that person. If you're not going to sell to that person, you're not going to succeed as, a, as an organisation. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, lots of organisations didn't like that. Uh, lots of individuals didn't like that. But it was, again, still something that's, that's needed and there's more and more organisations uh, participating in those sorts of sales and marketing activities. Mm. Uh, so I, I still do quite a bit of that. And then I started social scaffolding with a colleague about three years ago. And that was very much around organisations wanting to partner with corporates and do more of that shared value type work. Yep. Uh, so we signed up to the shared value project out of Melbourne and, right. and done quite a bit of work in that space and, and run workshops and individual consulting projects with not-for-profits and corporates wanting to work together. We did a lot of work in the social impact investment space, of which that's a, a growing part of the business. Mm. Uh, did a lot of work with not-for-profits wanting to release new products and services into the market, be it NDIS yeah. or aged care, uh, consumer-directed care, lots of organisations lots of not-for-profits wanting to release new products and services. Mm. And that, again, that's a skill that a yeah. lot of organisations haven't needed to have. So they've engaged organisations like Social Scaffold mm. to do that. It's certainly changed the landscape in that sector in Australia, yeah. hasn't it? Yeah, and, yeah. You know, it's a huge opportunity as well for, for the organisations themselves and, and for people like yourself who can, can help them. Yeah, as well. yeah. So organisations, some of them need to embed those skills for the long term, yeah. and some of them just need project-based work to support them get over a particular hump or a particular skill set. Uh, I guess my part of my mantra when I talk to these organisations is I feel they would have made the shift in terms of sales and marketing once I've appointed a business development manager or yeah. a sales director that reports directly that's part of the executive team, mm. then that mind shift has made it, they've made that cultural shift to go, yep, we are in the market of transactions yeah. and we're selling something. Uh, 
so I, again, I think that's a, uh, that's a transition organisations need to make and, and they'll engage us to help make that transition. And then when it comes to new products and services, that's not necessarily a skill that needs to be embedded in an organisation if they're only going to release a small number. No. They can benefit from external expertise, yep. help them make that shift and then the organisation's you know, ready to grow from there. Mm. But yeah, a lot of, there's a massive demand uh, and then around all of that work is pieces of work, for instance, influencing the board, mm. uh, influencing organisations, how they retain their earnings. Lots of organisations have, have grown large corpuses with the, the mentality of, oh, let's save it for a rainy day. Yeah. NDIS is, is an absolute storm. Yeah. Uh, so then, but now they've made that shift, there's an opportunity for organisations to invest that money socially yeah. for a, a good return. There's an opportunity for them in, to invest internally in the business to, to grow. Organisations haven't really thought about uh, investing their, their capital for the growth of the business. They've mm. often thought about what's the next tender coming up? What's the next contract? Yeah. How do we influence government to spend more in our particular service or our space rather than thinking let's invest back into our business and grow our business? Yeah, right which is fundamentals of business and the NDIS has forced organisations to shift into that into that space. Mm. Yeah. How interesting. So you've got a lot of experience, broad experience in the building and, and management of relationships at these senior levels. Mm. So from your experience then, what are the essential skills and traits that you believe are required to manage relationships successfully? The challenge with corporates and not-for-profits working together or someone from a corporate background wanting to work for not-for-profits and influence the not-for-profit space is that whole approach around trust. So a lot of organisations I've seen where they've been burnt, I guess, in Mm. respects by that corporate influence where the, the corporate person hasn't understand the barriers and the cultural shift that the not-for-profit has to go through and has mm. to think about and that it'll take time. So if you're not there for the long the long ride and sort of being at the, a seat at the table for a long period of time, then the, those those relationships, that trust just doesn't work. Yeah. It's not something where you can come in quickly and shift the dial <laughs> and, and expect to make a change. Mm. The, yeah. These organisations, some of them have been around for a really long period of time. And they've been delivering fantastic work. You're not, you're not expecting to try and shift that. You're trying to shift the way they conduct business. And that's a significant change for organisations. So absolutely trust. You, you need to, if you're coming in with the business hat on, you still need to understand mm. where the organisations come from, where the sectors come from, how it's changing, how government funding's changing, how the consumer's changing. Yeah. Uh, and so all of that state of flux, you, you need to understand it. You can't just come in with a business hat on mm. and expect that the, the client, the, the not-for-profit, is going to suddenly absorb everything that you're recommending, yeah. <laughs> implement everything that you're recommending. Exactly. Yeah, it's, it's and take ownership over that. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So it's it's really it's trust, and, and that trust comes about from sort of long-term relationships and, and, and being there for the longer journey. The, a big challenge that I see with organisations in terms of that longer term engagement is organisations will, and, and the, let's say the consultant or the person with the business hat on, will come in for a period of time and 
develop a strategy and an implementation plan and everyone's on board, the executives, the staff, and then it's up to the organisation to implement. And again, if the organisation is changing their culture and there's, there's a new approach to conducting business, there's two new things. A third thing is implementation. Organisations are extremely good at implementing according to mm. a tender and implementing according to projects. But trying to implement something so fundamental, a lot of organisations aren't good at that. Yeah. So we see organisations that succeed in the shift is where they are either have internal skills around implementation or they help they get help to implement it because you see lots of organisations that get consulted up to their eyeballs with new strategy and new products but then they struggle to implement it and that's not beneficial for anyone mm. so again if I was to talk about my experience in what works and what doesn't is that implementation piece yet. Yeah, lots of entrepreneurs have great ideas, lots of people have great ideas, but the ones that succeed are the ones that implement it. Mm. Yeah. And some organisations are good at it and some aren't. Yeah. yeah. So when it comes to then mapping and measuring that implementation, how yeah. do you go about it and what tips and advice would you give sure, to, to sure. our listeners? Yeah, sure. So it's absolutely a skill. It's, it's, it's project planning, it's communication, it's mapping those milestones and, and keeping everyone up to date on that, you know, project management implementation teams. Mm. I'm not a project manager. <laughs> uh, but there, there are special tools and it's absolutely a special skill set. Yeah. And you can't expect someone in your organisation who's been awesome at delivering a service or someone in your organisation who's been awesome at HR, who you can't expect them to suddenly have fantastic project implementation skills. It's a skill. So I'll either upskill them, spend the time to upskill them, or get someone in to help sit beside them and upskill them, or get someone else in to actually implement the mm. project. And there's project... I used to work for an IT company, and we would have project managers who specialised in implementation. It, it's an absolutely a fundamental skill set. Mm. And if, IT, if businesses and government spend millions of dollars on implementation, on implementing projects, but why should the not-for-profit space be any different? Mm. If, if, if you don't have the skills to implement a project, get the skills or pay for someone to come in and do it. Yeah. yeah. That's some really interesting points and probably highlights where some of these not-for-profits and social enterprises go wrong as well. So what do you see as some of the most important traits then of a social entrepreneur? And are there any common reasons that you believe that they may fail? Is it in that implementation, for example? I've, I've now spent more time with social entrepreneurs than entrepreneurs, and but I, but I do have, uh, you know, a network of friends and business people that I worked with that are entrepreneurs. Mm. So I guess my, my judgment's sort of clouded now with 15 years of working with social entrepreneurs. <laughs> um, but but the, my experience is that their expectation that they can do everything. You can't be an expert in everything. It's, it's simply impossible. And and I say, when I when people ask me what a social scaffolding do, I say I employ people smarter than me because I'm not good at project implementation. I'm not good at new business development, uh, launching new products and services, but my team are. Mm. My, te my team are much better at it than me. So I think it's really important for a social entrepreneur to understand what their skills are, 
this clearly their skills are rallying around support around an idea and understanding how that idea can create a social shift shift the dial on a social issue and then commencing that work but then after you know getting it to scale uh, expanding it nationally, adhering to quality assurance and uh, NDIS requirements, all of mm. those are specific skills and not everyone can do everything. Yeah. And I think a social entrepreneur understanding when to relinquish control around certain things, I think that's really important. Mm. Um, when I was at SVA, SVA was very much around supporting the social entrepreneur. It wasn't about a lot of the other things that they do now, it was very much around the social entrepreneur. So we saw firsthand across many, many entrepreneurs a, a consistent theme around things like terminal uniqueness. Hmm. They would they felt that they, the organisation was so unique that they couldn't get other people to help. The, the social entrepreneur had to do lead everything and be responsible for all decisions. And, and that was detrimental to the organisation. So you might see it some of these organisations that have grown and had a significant impact. But over many years, mm. if they're happy to be patient, that's fine. The, the, the challenge is these social issues are getting worse and a lot of them aren't getting any better. So we need to accelerate and expand that impact. Um, and if I was just to digress a little bit around how a social entrepreneur could can increase their impact is the, the challenge for... I think most organisations working with a board. Uh, I, I think I, I have a, a a real personal opinion around the effectiveness of boards, and you see a very small number of high impact boards, and you see a lot of boards that are simply wasting the time of the social entrepreneur. And you know, I can I can speak openly on this. I, I'm not on a board at the moment. Uh, I do lots of work with boards. I've reported directly to boards. I've been on boards. And I think board members and the social entrepreneurs and the CEOs really need to be uh, more direct and have a greater expectation on working together. And if that relationship's not working, get a new board member. Some of them are just massive wastes of time, I think, which is a really, really unfortunate. Instead of the social entrepreneur being able to get on with business, deliver according to the strategy and the boards, they're responsible for uh, setting up the strategy and being a part of those initial strategy development components, uh, activities. But once the strategy is in place, help monitor it and, and assist the CEO to deliver where necessary, but don't get involved in operations. Mm. And that's just a massive waste of time for yeah. the entrepreneur. How interesting. <laughs> yeah. And it, have the expectation that the entrepreneur has the skills in their team around delivering according to budget, delivering according to the implementation plan, uh, maintaining relationships in the sector, all of those things that a business needs to be good at. Yeah. Uh, and if they don't, then help the, help the CEO get the right team on board, get the right people on the bus, uh, and then deliver away, but don't get actively involved in operations. It's, it's not what a board is supposed to do. Mm, interesting. Shifting the conversation to finance and getting finance. Yes, yes. You spoke a little bit before about the, the investment of the corpus. Yeah. Um, how do you see the, this, this big shift and interest uh, in impact investing in Australia. Have you seen it shift and where do you see it heading into the future? 
it's, it's obviously uh, shifting and, and growing, which is really exciting. We're years behind what's happening in Canada and the US. I'm familiar with those two markets. I'm sure we're behind in other markets as well. The, the opportunity is where mainstream investors can see the investment opportunity in a social business. So a social business that has the right legal structure to either service debt or uh, service equity, irrespective if I think if the mainstream investors become more aware of that, it'll it'll make the market a lot bigger. I think part of the restriction at the moment is uh, people see or mainstream investors don't hear about it firstly, and mm. when new products, bonds, uh, invest managed manage funds are released to the market. There's a small number of people that know about it that are well cashed up and they get into it very early and then we've got to wait for the next product to come on board. So the market is evolving slower than, than the demand. So there's definitely, and we speak to philanthropists all the time, we speak to not-for-profits that have got funds available to mm. invest. Why park it in a... 2% uh, cash term deposit when you could invest it in a business and over a longer term you could get 3, 4, 5, 7%. I think there's the, the mentality that they might be riskier and there's the mentality that they might be slower, but it's surely it's better than just leaving it parked in a cash, in a cash term deposit. Mm. Uh, so yes, the, the market's are, I think really at a, at, at a tipping point where more people will demand more products and then the market will start servicing that. There's, there's a range of, for instance, um, social enterprise accelerators and at the end of it there's an opportunity to invest in these businesses. I think there'll be more and more of those businesses coming through that are investment ready, that are clear on their pitch, uh, clear on how they'll service th that investment and then the mainstream investors will start coming to the table and going, well, this, this makes sense. Mm. They're, they're servicing a, a market that's uh, not crowded, that's not competitive, that's growing. Uh, I think it's really, really exciting. Yeah, yeah, fantastic. And if you think about philanthropists that have got money sitting there, you've got self-managed super funds that have got money sitting there, they can invest them, that money in whatever they want. Mm. Why not invest it socially and get a financial return? Absolutely. So that could be completely different interview <laughs> and next, a second. I might have to come back in the future <laughs> yeah, right. so what about some really interesting organizations or projects that you've seen or worked with recently or just observed that mm -hmm. you believe are creating some excellent positive social impact so there's lots of new products and services coming through in the consumer directed care space yep. where a person has a package they can spend it on a range of different things and there's lots of new businesses, new products and services that are entering into that space, which is which is really exciting. There's lots of uh, sort of sole traders that are upskilling to service that market as well, and I think that's really mm -hmm. exciting. And then there's businesses helping those sole traders get uh, ready. Yeah. Uh, there's new technologies to helping enable people live to live independently. There's uh, training um, and sort of uh, upskilling organisations to help individuals navigate the system and, and not just live more independently, but live uh, better connected to community, which has all sorts of fantastic social outcomes as well. So, so we've worked with a, a range of different businesses that are growing in that space. We're working with some organisations that are state-based in terms of their service delivery and they want to go national. Yeah. And I think that's a really important 
evolution because there's lots of national and multinational for-profit businesses that are listed that are really just waiting for the NDIS to become less complicated and then they'll enter the market and they'll take what we call sort of the low-hanging fruit. I think while that's, ha while that's happening and while that's sort of waiting, there's a, a need for good products and services that are either locality-based or state-based to, to grow and become national. And, it, and if they don't, so I'm talking about social businesses, if they don't, then it's, it's a market opportunity that's uh, they're going to miss. And I, I guess you've then got the conundrum and, and the, the, the culture within an organisation that goes, well, we're doing fine in our state, why do we need to go national? So I can definitely accept that and I talk to organisations often that are prepared to take on that risk and that extra work, that's fine. My, my shift in that is, is if you feel that you're changing people's lives from your product or service and you could change more people's lives, why not grow the business? Why not employ more people? Why not take on debt from a social impact investor? And why not go national? That, that, that's my mentality, mm. <laughs> uh, rightly or wrongly. And I, and I think that's, that's, a, that's a demand, that's a market opportunity that I think if we can influence and support more, organize, more social businesses to do that, I think that's really exciting. So when the, the social businesses are coming through incubators and accelerators early, or they've they've grown their business to a certain point in time and then they're ready to, to expand and, and go national, for instance, I think if we can get the right support and the right money to them at the right point in time, that's really opportunistic. Mm -hmm. uh, otherwise, all of these better funded, listed, for-profit entities are just going to eat the market up really, really quickly. Yeah. Uh, and so just on that, that social impact investment piece, the issue that we see often is the time from when the business is, the social business is ready for funding to grow and they've gone, okay, yep, I want to go national, here's my business plan, here's all my due diligence. The lag between the, from then to when they get the money in the bank is too long, mm. way too long. So that's what we're trying to work closing on, that gap closing that gap a little bit. Like if you're ready to build a house, buy a car, any of those sorts of uh, debt in your life, you can actually, unfortunately, you can get it really, really quickly. Mm. Whereas if a social business wants to grow and they've, you know, they've taken quite a bit of time to grow the business and then taken some time to make that mind shift to go, yep, we're prepared to take on debt, we're prepared to grow, the social entrepreneurs prepared to uh, let some of that responsibility let rest with their senior executives. Then the time lag between when they get m that money to deliver on that plan is just way too long. Yeah. And that's a big difference I see between entrepreneurs and social entrepreneurs. And part of it might be because they're, they're, the entrepreneur is better at selling themselves and the business plan and the vision and the return on investment, whereas social entrepreneurs are far more reluctant to the big note themselves and, and to, to put themselves forward because that's what you have to do to raise capital. If, if the social entrepreneur can raise capital faster, I think we'll have a, a massive change in the social impact investment market and we'll have seen much greater success for social businesses. Yeah. Mm.
an interesting insight. So to finish off then, Andrew, are there any books that you'd like to share with our audience? <laughs> I've got this, I've got oh, this book go. that I borrowed from book. Steve Williams. <laughs> <laughs> it's a massive read, but it's well worth it. That would take it, all year to read it. It took me quite some time and I've got notes all the way through. I've got it sitting here waiting for, to capture some of the notes. But yes, Naomi Klein's This Changes Everything. It's a bit dated now. Uh, but the... 2014, yeah, it's a fantastic read. I've read a couple of her other books. Uh, but yes, here I am talking about the concept of, you know, growing nationally and yeah. corporate influence and becoming a corporate. Naomi's picture is very much around, well, a lot of the corporates have been doing bad mm. <laughs> and their influence on, for instance, global warming, uh, you know, if that if that market was to shift, then it's bad for the corporates that have been capitalising for, on for so long. So, you know, that's a probably in interesting insight where the, the social sector sees the corporate sector as doing bad and hence don't want to be a part of it. So hence they go, I just want to stay local, I don't want to grow, I don't want to become corporate. You know, whilst it's not entrenched, there's still a, a, a barrier at, at board level and executive level to think that shift into running the business better is bad. Mm. And so from my perspective, it's it's no, it's not taking a social idea and making it corporatized. It's simply running the business as a business. And CSIA have exactly uh, that that mantra as part of their service delivery. It's about the business of running the business, not for profits of running a business. And if you get the right skills around the table, you can run that business more efficiently, you can mm. have better outcomes, you can attract social impact investment. Yeah. Yeah, I should draw a diagram. Oh, well, you'd be welcome, but you can stick it in the article. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> Andrew, thanks so much for your really generous insights and time today. We look forward to coming back and touching your base and wish you best of luck for the rest of the year. Thanks very much, Tom, and thanks very much, Impact Boom. Thanks for listening to Impact Boom. You'll find links to the initiatives, people, and resources mentioned in this podcast on impactboom.org. Please leave your comments below and remember, we'll be publishing fresh inspiration and insights to help you create positive impact every week on the website, Facebook page and Twitter.